And that should make sense because there's probably more Christians in this country than any other country in the world. And we're also hated, of course, because we are an ally of Israel. When we look at the United Nations, we now see that they've been exposed for what we all have thought they were and are as a den of thieves. Now they've been exposed for one of the greatest corruptions in the history of the world. What was it? Twenty three billion dollars or something like that in the oil for food scandal. Now considered the largest ripoff in world history. Worst of all, the entire world now lives under the fear of Islamic terrorists. Currently, if you look around and you just want to know the facts, 95 percent of all conflicts of all wars in the world involve Muslims fighting non-Muslims or fighting each other, committing barbaric atrocities that defy the imagination And sadly, even our own president calls Islam a peaceful religion and would say that we are not at war with Islam. However, 123 verses in the Quran advocate fighting and killing non-Muslim people for the cause of Allah. And indeed, I would agree that the West is not at war with Islam, but I would argue adamantly that they are at war with us. Our government, I believe, is blinded to the fact that Islamic terrorism is far more than the actions of a radical fringe, but rather it is the combined effort of a huge movement in the world. And history is replete with evidence that would tell us that the goal of Islam is world domination. It's especially scary when you consider that the world's Muslim population, they believe, will now double in about 35 years and every 30 years thereafter. Currently, world population of Muslims has increased by 235 percent. By the way, Christianity has only produced or or grown, increased by some 47 percent. All of Europe is now beginning to panic because of the tidal wave of growth in is of Islam. In fact, in 30 years, the Muslim population of Great Britain has risen from 82,000 to now over two million. So what's the answer? Well, everybody knows that the answer is democracy, right? That's what we hear. Let the people determine their own destiny. Let the majority rule. Well, dear friends, what do you do when the majority becomes Muslim? What do you do when Islam begins to take over? And all you have to do is look at every place where Islam dominates and you will see poverty. You will see ignorance. You will see oppression and barbaric atrocities against people. What do you do when the majority of the world hates the God of the Bible? And certainly I would argue that that is the case even already. What do you do when the majority of Americans hate Bible believing Christians and hate the Lord Jesus Christ with a violent contempt? Well, certainly I would argue and maybe you would agree that democracy is not the answer. However, it is probably the best solution that we have this side 
of a savior, the sight of a king. Dear friends, I would say, and the Bible would agree, that what the world needs is a savior. What the world needs is an omnipotent king that will rule with complete righteousness, with a rod of iron. What the world needs today is a sovereign king that will reign in perfect holiness, one whose justice is perfect and swift, whose heart is filled with loving kindness and mercy, one who will not compromise and never yield to any form of self-serving wickedness. Well, fortunately, my message to you this morning does not end with gloom and doom, but rather it is one of hope. Because, indeed, I bring you good news that the very Savior that we all long for has already come once and established a kingdom that is growing and that he is going to come again as King of Kings and Lord of, hope, Lord of Lords. And certainly this is the hope of all of the redeemed throughout history. And during this Christmas season, we celebrate his first coming. Now, may I remind you, begin before we look at the text, that God knew all of the problems that would eventually plague a sin-ridden world. He knew exactly what would be required to somehow bring a remedy and to satisfy his justice. He knew that he would have to send a savior. He would have to send one to pay for the sins of all of those that he chose to love in eternity past with an everlasting love. In fact, according to Genesis 3 and verse 14, you need not turn there. Because of sin, we read that he cursed the ruler of this world, Satan, saying that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That is, there will be a perpetual struggle between unbelievers, who would be the children of the devil, and between the seed of the woman, namely Christ, a descendant of Eve, and those in him, namely believers. Then he went on to promise in verse 15 that he, referring to Christ, shall bruise you, referring to Satan, on the head, and you, referring to Satan, shall bruise him, referring to Christ, on the heel. In other words, Satan will only be able to cause Christ someday to suffer by bruising his heel. And, of course, God was pointing to the time when Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. But Christ will bruise Satan's head. In other words, he will deal him a death blow. This was a marvelous promise of a coming deliverer, a message of hope because of our Savior's finished work on the cross of Calvary. Indeed, Satan was delivered that crushing fatal blow. And as believers, we who are united to Christ and therefore part of the woman's seed are allies with Christ against the prince of darkness. And we participate in the ongoing battle that will defeat Satan and all that belong to him. By the way, is there any wonder now why we are so hated in a world that is dominated by the prince and the power of the air, the kingdom of darkness and the king of darkness, Satan himself? Well, today we reflect upon another stage in that ancient promise of a savior that would someday come as the light of Christ is now revealed to the lowly shepherds. And we want to look at that. We looked at it some last week, but I wanted to go back there 
because I, I just believed that there was much more that we could glean from this text. Let me read it to you, and then we will notice some marvelous things that apply to our lives here today. Beginning in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and around them, and they were and, and, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph. And the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. May I remind you of the context? Because of sin, the covenant people, the people of Israel, had not witnessed the glorious presence of God, as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, the brilliant shining of his presence. They had not seen that for some over 400 years when that glory had departed from the temple because of sin. They had not seen a prophet for 400 years. There had been no angelic announcements for 400 years. All they had heard was the sound of silence. And now suddenly, the ineffable brilliance of the glory of God illumines this hillside in Bethlehem. And how fascinating to think the group that God chose to reveal himself to at this time. To consider that for his first public announcement of one of the greatest events in the history of the world, he reveals himself to a lowly, socially and religiously unacceptable group, an anonymous band of shepherds. Now think about that. Not the religious elite of Jerusalem. He didn't go to the temple, to the high priests. He didn't go to Herod and the political movers and shakers of the day. Of course, God never seems to understand how to properly market his ministry. But instead, he goes to these sheep herders. Now, shepherds were a dirty lot. They worked a thankless job. It was very low paying. Shepherding required very little education, very little skill, just a willingness to live with smelly, stupid sheep. 24-7. And because of this, they were unable to observe the Sabbath. They were unable to keep many aspects of the law. 
much less the, the, the myriad of, of, of idiotic regulations required by the Pharisees. So, therefore, they were considered religiously and kind of socially unacceptable. They, they were considered unclean by many. In fact, they were even unable to testify in a court of law. Just the type of people the Lord loves to reveal himself to, right? And later, even the Lord himself referred to himself as the good shepherd. God's choice of these shepherds, dear friends, for such a supernatural revelation of the birth of Messiah illustrates well his desire to offer salvation to the meek and to the lowly, not to the proud or to the haughty. Mary, in fact, praised God for this very thing in Luke 152. There she said, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. And of course, this was consistent also with the Redeemer's prophecy concerning himself in Isaiah 61 in verse one. There we read the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And this was now the pre incarnate Christ speaking. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So what I want you to see this morning as we look at this historical narrative of the shepherds, that like so many other passages in Scripture, we are going to see a beautiful metaphor of salvation. Herein, dear friends, we will witness the marvelous workings of sovereign grace, because we are going to be able to observe the humble response of those who are truly regenerate when God reveals to them the glories of his grace. And I trust we will all measure our lives by their response. There's much that I want you to see here this morning over the next few minutes as we look at this familiar text. And so, therefore, I've divided it into four sections that I trust will be helpful to you. And again, may I remind you, this is not an allegory. These things were historical fact. They are historical fact. But I trust that you will see some amazing parallels here of genuine salvation. The four parts are simply this. The shepherds, first of all, stood in silent fear. Secondly, they sought the Lord in haste. Thirdly, they shared the good news. And fourthly, they served in humble obedience. First of all, let's think of them as they stood silent in fear. Now imagine the scene. While some of the shepherds no doubt were asleep, others had to remain vigilant because nighttime is always the most dangerous time for a shepherd. That's the time when predators would come and thieves would come. And you have probably been like me. You've been in the dark many times before. I've spent many, many nights in wilderness areas where there is nothing but darkness and wild animals around. And certainly the darkness naturally increases a level of anxiety. There seems to be in the darkness a pervasive dread of doing battle with something that you may not be able to see very well. And so your nerves are on edge. Your adrenaline begins to run. And your imagination gets stimulated in the darkness at night. Now, in the midst of that, verse 9 says, And an angel of the Lord stud suddenly stood before them. Can you imagine 
what that would have been like. I mean, you talk about speechless. You talk about terrified. Inconceivable shock. But not only that, it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. So not only do, do they all of a sudden see an angel standing there, also now they're suddenly enveloped in a cloud of resplendent light, as we have studied recently. And certainly this required supernatural intervention to prevent them from immediate blindness. And naturally, as the text says, they were terribly frightened. But notice they were not incinerated. They were not incinerated. Now, why do I say that? Say that because... Had they been unregenerate, sinful men, they would have been. This gives proof, I believe, to the fact that they were devout, righteous men who trusted God to do what he had promised Abraham, and that is to provide for himself a lamb. Their faith was in the mercies of God, not their miserable attempts at self-righteousness. And so here now they stand silent in fear. In the presence of the living God, whose glorious presence is surrounding them in this brilliant, dazzling light of his Shekinah, exposing every sin, exposing every secret thought. Now, might I say that this is always the proper response to divine revelation, that of silent fear of the living God whom we have offended You see, God undoubtedly saw the fact that these men recognized their sinful condition, making it possible for the light of his glory to shine upon them without consuming them. Naturally, they were afraid. And if I can put this in in a very practical context, dear friends, a, a man will never plead for God's mercy until he first fears the consuming fire of God's holy wrath. Until he is, first of all, so struck with his sin that he becomes afraid that God will not even save him. But there again, man is never closer to grace than when he is quite convinced that he can never have it and that he certainly does not deserve it. But men who have no fear of offending God, who do not tremble before his word with a passionate desire to be obedient, those men stand Condemned by the light they reject. You know, throughout Scripture, there are many examples of those who survived the blazing light of his glory, all because of God's mercy and regeneration that caused them to see their own sin and therefore fear him. You will remember the glory of God that was separated above the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant and hovered over the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim which contained the tablets of law that had been violated. The holiness of God is there symbolized as being above the mercy seat, over the violated law, and therefore unapproachable apart from mercy, where the shedding of blood would be applied. So the holiness of God is depicted throughout Scripture as being utterly transcendent, utterly transcendent and utterly unapproachable. Remember when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and the Israelites on Mount Sinai. You will remember the story how that um, the people could not even approach the mountain without fear of instant death. And the mountain was covered with smoke and the Lord, the text says, descended in fire. And there was this increasingly loud sound of a trumpet. And the text says that the, that the smoke ascended from the mount like a furnace. 
So it was like a volcano and the mountain quaked violently. And Moses had been told to set a boundary all the way around the mountain so that the people and not even their animals could approach it. And then they were to be warned that if they got near it, the holiness of God would consume them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and he said in Exodus 19:21, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. Well, then God gave Moses the law and later on in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 18, we read and all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Indeed, dear friends, God is a consuming fire. And his holiness should evoke fear and trembling. The sound of his voice, as we hear it through his revealed word, should motivate us all to instant obedience and and immediate praise for his mercy and his grace. And the dazzling light of, of his Shekinah presence has always been an indication that he is manifesting himself in his holiness. In fact, we can see this in Isaiah 6. You remember when Isaiah saw the glory of God, he was so horrified that that he immediately began confessing his sin. You remember that? He said, woe is me. You know, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips, which certainly is an expression of the heart, that which comes out of the mouth. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he even pronounced a curse upon himself. And in Ezekiel chapter one and verse 28, we read how that Ezekiel found himself in the in the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And it was so overwhelming that he fell on his face in absolute utter horror. And in Matthew 17, you will remember Peter, James and John were on the mount there with the Lord and and they saw Jesus face. Remember, we studied that, I believe, last week. And his face was the the text says was like the sun and and his garments were like lightning that was flashing. And there Jesus revealed the glory that had been housed in his earthly body. And those men were so paralyzed with fear that that again, they fell on their face. Paul fell to his face when confronted with the Shekinah of the Lord's presence on the road to Damascus. And John passed out with fear when he saw the Shekinah of his presence in Revelation one, when he saw the glory of the ascended Christ. It's fascinating, however, as I thought about this, as you will see it in a minute, just an amazing thing how God reveals the light of his glory to whom he wishes and others never see it, which, again, is a beautiful picture of salvation. Do you remember back in Exodus 13? The glory of God was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And there we read how how the brilliance of his presence not only led them, but protected them. You will recall in that text that just before crossing the Red Sea. The there there, there was an elite chariot division of Egypt coming after them, 
and the glory of God was leading the children of Israel up to the Red Sea. And then we read that suddenly the presence of the glory of God goes from the, the front of the children of Israel and goes to the back of them to form a barrier between them and the, and the, the approaching chariots. And it's interesting, in verse 19 of Exodus 13, here's what we read. And the angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud of, and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other. So that the one did not come near the other all that night. Isn't that fascinating? The brilliance of the presence of God was a light unto those whom he chose to reveal himself. But it was complete, utter darkness to those who he chose not to reveal himself to. And so, again, it's a sobering reality, is it not? God chooses who he will who will see the light of his glory. And to those who have been given spiritual eyes, they, they will see it. But to those whom he has passed over and left in the darkness of their unbelief, they will never see the light of Christ. They will perish in the darkness that they love. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul reminds us that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So throughout Scripture, we see that in the mysterious elective purposes of God, God has chosen who will see the light of his glory, and he passes over those who will not. In fact, in Romans 9 and verse 23, we read that he reveals the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand. For glory. But notice, he chose to reveal the light of his glory, his glorious presence to these shepherds now that are standing before him in silent fear on this barren hillside around Bethlehem. Now, some of us have had the privilege of being there and we know what the landscape looks like. And I will tell you that if this glorious light had appeared, which I believe it did because God said it did. That everyone for literally a hundred miles would have been able to see it. There's no way you could have hidden something that bright. In fact, you can get back, as I have done, some 50 and 60 miles on various little mountains surrounding Jerusalem. And you can see the Holy Mount. You can see the area where all of this would have taken place. And at night, you can spot certain lights in certain buildings. Now, what's my point? My point is simply this. Everyone should have been able to have seen that light on that Bethlehem hillside. But obviously they didn't. And I want to remind you of another place where we see the same thing. Turn back in Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 2. We have a fascinating text here where the Shekinah glory of God is revealed to the Persian kingmakers commonly called the Magi, which was the priestly line of the Medes. And when they saw 
the Shekinah glory of God, they knew immediately to come to Bethlehem to worship the Messiah. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, may I remind you again, the term star in Greek is austere. We get our English word star from that. But it does not refer only to a star that we would see up in the heavens. It means a blazing forth, a shining forth which we believe would be a reference to the shining forth that we have seen all throughout Scripture. And so, in other words, we saw his shining forth in the east. We saw the Shekinah presence of God in the east. And we've come to worship him. Now, verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. By the way, we know historically that many of his troops were out of town during that time. And when the Magi came in, it's estimated that they came in not with just three dudes on, on some camels like we see on Christmas cards. But there are other historical documents that would indicate there may, may have been as many of a, as a hundred of them coming in with a thousand crack Persian troops riding with them. So naturally, Herod was scared to death. Because Persia was always doing battle with Rome, and they always fought right there in the land of Palestine. And so he was terrified. He was troubled. And verse 4 says, In gathering together the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. In other words, hey, I want all you theologians to get over here. Tell me about the Messiah that, that we've heard about. Where is he supposed to be born? You guys are supposed to know the scripture. Well, verse 5, And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophets, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from, the, from them the time the star appeared. And literally in the Greek, what he's saying is, when did you see the shining blaze forth like lightning? Now, again. Herod and all of these people didn't see it. The Magi did. In fact, the glory of God led them to this place. But they didn't see it. And then he goes on in verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Ha ha. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, look what happens. The star, the Shekinah, the blazing forth, once again, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. Which, by the way, is certain indication that it could not have been a star like we see every night when we look up into the sky. And verse 10 says, and when they saw the blazing forth, when they saw the Shekinah, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. Now, we come back to the text. And may I again say, as we look at what happens here with the shepherds in Luke 2, we see that God chooses who, we, who will see the light and who will not. And if I can also add this, God is glorified in both salvation and in judgment. And we see this graphically portrayed in the blazing light of his glory. 
when it illumined the hearts and the minds of the humble, yet remained unseen to the proud, who love darkness rather than what? Who love darkness rather than light. But notice, for those who fear him, there is no need to be afraid. Verse 10 and 11, we read, And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. And here's why. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. In other words, tidings of great joy, not of judgment. I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ, or in other words, Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lord, or in other words, the Master. And again, here is an irrefutable affirmation of the deity of Christ and the purpose of Christ to be your Savior and to be my Savior and Lord. That he was born for you. Folks, herein is the indescribable gift when we think of Christmas, when we think of Christ, that we have, now catch this, a personal Savior. Let that sink in. It, it was your face that... He saw even before he created you. It was it it was your person that he loved even while you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It was it was for you and for me personally that he descended from glory and took upon himself the form of a man and lived a perfect life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice for your sin and for mine. We have a personal savior. And such personal and intimate love is beyond my ability to, to, to fully fathom, much less be able to describe. But, dear friends, I will tell you, and I'm sure many of you will concur with what I'm about to say. I understand enough to know with utmost conviction that this Jesus in the manger has transformed every fiber of my being. And this Jesus in the manger, and when I think of, of God, I think of not just God the Father, but God the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this Jesus in the manger is the one that causes me to live with every waking waking moment in the presence of his glory and with joy. And I know that every breath that he gives me is one more extension of my life to live to the praise of his glory. And I know many of you concur with that and you live in light of those glorious truths. And so I can honestly say that the Lord Jesus Christ is my personal savior. I know many of you personally, and I know my wife more than anyone in this world intimately. And I would say that even beyond that relationship, there is a personal relationship that I have and that all of the saints have with the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the good news will bring great joy for all the people. And now here he expands this referring to all men everywhere, everywhere the good news is heard. Now catch this, even for those who refuse to embrace Christ as Savior will enjoy the blessings that he bestows upon his own children. In other words, there's a spillover of blessing. The rain falls on the just as well as the unjust. However, the overflow of blessings that unbelievers experience will not extend beyond their earthly existence. In fact, I have no doubt that the reason why God continues to bless the United States of America is because he has so many of his own children living here. There's no doubt about that. And also because we remain supportive of Israel. Genesis 12:3, God has promised that I will bless those who bless you, referring to Abraham and his descendants 
And the one who curses you, I will curse. And notice, dear friends, as they stood silent before the glory of the Lord in fear, the angelic messenger told them how to spot the child, the king, the savior in the city of David. And notice that he does not tell them that you will find him seated upon a throne of grandeur. You'll not find him surrounded by a heavenly host. You will not go in and find him clothed in in purple robes and majestic splendor, illumined by unapproachable light. But rather, you're going to see him as a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I, I, I just marvel at this. Is it any wonder that the very thought of such unimaginable humility triggered the response of the heavenly hosts in verse 13. Because that's when we read, suddenly, it's like all of a sudden, bam, there's this explosion. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. I hope I can, I, I can help you wrap your mind around this. Think of this. The ministering spirits called angels who who instantly and perfectly do the bidding of God, who find themselves constantly around the throne of God. These magnificent creatures, eyewitnesses to to the majesty and grandeur of the triune God. Suddenly, they're watching what goes on, and it's like they just explode onto the scene with praise. Why? Because now they witness a new aspect, a new dimension Of the glorious God that created them. The glorious God that they serve. Now they see a love that they cannot understand. They witness a new dimension of his glory. And that is they witness the incarnation of the living God. But notice carefully their words. And by the way, this explains the magnitude and the fervor of their praise. They say in verse 14, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, let me get technical for a moment, because there's lots of misunderstanding about this verse. The King James Version says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Many people misinterpret this text and they use it out of context. You will see it on on yard decorations. You'll find it on Christmas cards. This this idea of, of peace on earth. And many people think of it as, uh, as, as a phrase or a reference to uh, let's have the absence of conflict. Uh, let, let's all just get along. Let's stop all wars. Let's, let's enjoy a relaxed state of mind. In other words, peace on earth translates into tranquility. Now, th- this is typical of our naive and theologically ignorant society. But rather, what he is saying is... Peace with God is now available. What it's literally saying is that because of sin, because we are enemies with God, something has to be done. And now that something is occurring. That's what caused the angels to say glory to God in the highest. And what, he's, what, he, what they're literally saying is because of Christ, because of salvation, we can now be reconciled to God and have peace with him. You see, this is what the angels understood. This is why they guarded his holiness. They understood that God is utterly holy, that there is no one that can approach his holiness. 
And now God, in his infinite love, comes down from heaven in the incarnate Christ so that we can all have peace with God through our faith in the righteousness of Christ. That's what he's saying. How different than what we see on our Christmas cards. Because of sin, we know in John 3:36 that the wrath of God abides on unbelievers. Romans 5:10, we are told that we are enemies of God apart from Christ. Colossians 1:21 says that we were once alienated and enemies of God, and on and on it goes. And so, friends, what they're saying is glory to God in the highest because He has provided a way for people to be at peace with God. But note also the phrase after it commonly is one that's also commonly used with whom he is pleased. That's the New American Standard. The, the New King James and the King James says goodwill toward men. And again, you'll see this a lot on Christmas cards. And, and, and uh, I'm not saying they shouldn't necessarily be there, but I hope you understand what it really means. Many people naively think, well, it means let's just all show kindness to one another. I, I mean, after all, all, it says goodwill toward men. So, boy, that, that's a that's a nice, nice thing that we can say. And what they refer to or many people would refer to in, the, in this with this text is is kind of a sentimental version of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know, let, let's all just get along here. And, and others erroneously assume with the New American Standard translation where it says with whom he is pleased that that refers to salvation through works. In other words, he'll give peace of mind and, and, and to, to those who do good things and please him. It's amazing how people can twist all of this. But friends, literally what he's saying is peace among men of his good pleasure. Now catch that. Peace among men of his good pleasure. The angels are saying glory to God in the highest. Because those who are the sovereignly chosen recipients of his grace, purely because of his good pleasure, can now have peace with God by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. You must understand this. All who have received the gift of salvation received it solely on the basis of God's good pleasure. That's the point. This is why they are rejoicing the angels knew that the men, that men on earth and, and, and women on earth could do nothing to save themselves. They're spiritually dead. God has done it all. That's why they're saying glory to God in the highest, not glory to God and man who cooperated with God. There is nothing in salvation. Catch this again. Nothing in salvation that is dependent upon the will of man that he should share, share in the glory of his salvation. Nothing. All of the glory belongs to him. Charles Spurgeon has said it so well, and I quote, The only glad tidings that made the angels sing are those that put God first, last, God midst, and God without end in the salvation of his creatures, and put the crown holy and alone upon the head of him that saves without a helper. Glory to God in the highest is the angel's song. Now, friends, this was the theology that evoked the angelic adoration. The angels are saying, what love, what mercy, what grace. And because of this, they erupt in praise, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. And I think of it that these were the same creatures that sang at creation. Remember what Job said, referring to them as the morning stars that sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy 
at creation. And now these same magnificent beings are rejoicing because of an even greater cause for rejoicing. They're now witnesses of his grace, something that they that they couldn't understand. And the hymnist has captured it perfectly. And we sang it earlier. Angels from the realms of glory, wing your downward flight to earth. Ye who sing creation's story now proclaim Messiah's birth. Come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn king. And child of God, please think of this. How can we, as the undeserved recipients of such love, do anything less than the angels who will never experience such grace? I'm sure that such a thought inspired Charles Wesley when he wrote those great words. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. My gracious master and my God assist me to proclaim to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. And that's precisely what the shepherds did. After standing silent in fear as they heard the good news, secondly, they sought the Lord in haste. In verse 15 and 16, we read, And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. You know, as I meditated upon this text, I suddenly began to laugh a little bit. It's always difficult to tell who is a true worshiper of God. Now, many people, you know, they talk about God, but they don't understand the triune God of the Bible. They have never placed their, their faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so many times they're not true worshipers. But, you know, you think of it as you look at this text, if I can put it this way, you can always spot a, a true worshiper because when the singing stops, when all of the emotion begins to die down and is at rest, true worshipers continue to seek the Lord. They continue to seek the Lord. Put it a little bit differently. When all of the praise music is over, you realize that praise music is just the catalyst for worship. It's not the conclusion of it. You know, there was never a song service like this one. Never a song service like this one. Suddenly, as these shepherds are standing around there basking in the resplendent glory of, of, of God's light, this angelic messenger uh, telling this, this, this incredible news of a personal savior that's going to forgive your sins. And then, and then you have myriads of the heavenly hosts breaking forth in praise. I mean, friends, this begs language. I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to describe such a scene. Talk about a song service. But my, that just motivates true worshipers to now do something more than just sing the songs and then when it's over, go about their daily activities. I mean, now you want to seek the Lord in haste because you want to be close to him. You want to see him. You want to touch him. You want to bow before him. You want to hear the sound of his voice. And friends, I will tell you that there is no greater thrill on earth than worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. And friends, may I ask you, do you seek the Lord in haste? As James said, are you quick to hear? Do you long to hear his voice? Do you long to commune with him? Well, these dear shepherds stood in silent fear and then they sought him in haste. But then thirdly, they shared the good news. Verse 17. 
And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. I love that phrase. What a wonderful thought. Nothing can restrain the testimony of those who have fearfully stood silent in the presence of divine revelation. And then, having heard the good news, sought the Lord in haste. There is nothing that can silence that heart. What a blessed picture of the truly redeemed. Very often I hear that so-and-so got saved. Or I hear reports of hundreds or even thousands of people that professed Christ at some, some event. And whenever I hear that, I'm always guardedly optimistic. But I'll tell you this. When I see a new convert, presumably, seek the Lord in haste. And when I see that convert passionately pursuing relationship with God and then sharing the gospel with others, then I begin to sigh a sigh of relief. Because now I can look at them and I can rejoice with greater confidence that indeed perhaps this is a trophy of his redeeming grace. Perhaps this is a person who has stood in fear and sought the Lord in haste. Now, these dear shepherds certainly lacked credibility in their culture because of their status in society. Not to mention the unbelievable story that they began spreading around. Could you imagine the laughter that would have erupted from the scribes and Pharisees. Can you believe what these characters are saying? They said that angel came to them and talked about this, that, and another thing, and then there's a host of them, and they're singing, and they saw the Shekinah glory that we haven't seen in 500 years. Can you believe those idiots? But I'm sure others believed. Notice in verse 18, And all who heard it wondered. The original language indicates that they were amazed at what they heard. They were amazed at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. What a precious young lady she would have been as she reflects upon the Savior to whom she had given birth. So after standing in silent fear and seeking the Lord in haste and now sharing the good news, fourthly, we see that they served in humble obedience. Verse 20. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. The grammar here indicates that, 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 that this was a lifestyle now of glorifying and praising God, regardless of the ridicule, despite the offense of their message, saying that it is God that has to Make peace with himself through a savior. We cannot do it. And he does that according to his good pleasure. Regardless of all of the ridicule that they would have received, they continued to proclaim the glorious truths that were revealed to them. And will you notice for a moment that very important phrase, just as had been told them. No embellishments. No need for some new revelation beyond what was already said. There was no need to add to the story. It's glorious in and of itself. No trifling with the truth, no compromising, no softening of the story to make it a little bit more believable for the masses. No watering it down. They said just as had been told them. 
And so they went back to their shepherding with greater purpose now. One far beyond just the mere keeping of sheep. Now these were men on a mission, living for the glory of God and humble obedience. May I close with this thought this morning? What is your response when you see and hear the glory of God through his word? Oh, indeed, the glory of God still resides in heaven and someday he will come again and we will see the sign of his coming. And he will descend in power and great glory. But we also know, according to the Apostle John in John 1 and verse 9, that the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man was Christ. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us, referring to Christ, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. And so, in other words, the glory of Christ is also found in the light of his gospel. In the light and the power of his word, my question is, what is your response to the presence of God when he reveals himself in the light of revealed truth? My prayer is that you will stand in silent fear in the presence of God's revelation. And you have heard it today. You have heard it today. And then on the basis of that, because you recognize your sin and you recognize the Savior, that you will seek the Lord in haste. And if you do that, you cannot help but share the good news with others. And then serve in humble obedience the rest of your days. These are the marks of the redeemed, my friends. And I trust that you will take what you've heard this morning and do as Mary did. Treasure up all of these things and ponder them in your heart. Let's pray together. Father, the word that you have given us is very clear and the real issue is what will we do with it and Lord there is bound to be those within the sound of my voice who have never bowed the knee to Christ they worship some ethereal God that they don't even really understand not the God of the Bible who provided the satisfaction for his own justice through sending his own son and now because of Christ, we can have peace with God. And when that occurs, it's solely because of your good pleasure. Lord, we rejoice in these wonderful truths, but we pray with utmost passion for those that know you not as Savior. Oh, God, how I pray as your servant that you will move upon their hearts with profound conviction and draw them to yourself and save them by your good pleasure. For the rest of us, may we walk even as the shepherds walked with a lifestyle of glorifying and praising you for what you have done for us. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray with great thanksgiving. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.